from the Willamette Valley in America's great Pacific Northwest. You are listening to the Ernest Mann Show, and I'm your host, Ernest Mann. No matter where you may be listening in this great, big, beautiful world, we all share. Yes, absolutely. And thank you for listening or for listening again. And I also wanted to, in particular, thank my listeners in Frankfurt, Germany, and Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Your support is very much appreciated. And we're going to get into episode number 206, Inside Information, Running Your Vehicle Using E85, Some Things You Should Know. For many years, I don't believe it should come as any kind of surprise that uh, we've been using, most of us in the U.S., have been using ethanol-added gasoline, and it's commonly known as E85. And there has, over the years, been debate on whether or not this is a, a good thing. And I wanted to throw my hat into the ring on this because, well, that's what I want to do. You want to hear what is not necessarily popular, but what is the truth as I see it, as I have found. And so that's what this is about. There have been many debates God, I don't know how many debates on the supposed benefits of using the additive of ethanol in gasoline. And, you know, is it good? Is it bad? And, well, that is a what I would call a deceptively simple question. Now, as far as the pros, well, that is also a mixed bag. For your car, as far as running your car is concerned, it's not bad. I would certainly say that it's one of those deals that the benefits outweigh any downsides. Um, Some people have erroneously come to the conclusion that it is the ethanol in gasoline that can be used that they put in to small power equipment, um, everything from lawnmowers, chainsaws, hedge trimmers, things of that ilk that end up doing bad things to your uh, device. 
And as far as everything I have been able to find on that, it is, and I want to uh, get rid of some of the confusion here, is that there has a, uh, been a, a huge argument basically stating that no, 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 um, you don't want to use anything, any gasoline with ethanol in it, that it gunks up carburetors and you know basically that it has a a really deleterious effect on your uh, your small gasoline powered equipment but from what i have been able to determine that simply it's not that cut and dried it's not that simple what it is are the additives that vary from brand to brand that can be causing a potential problem with your your small gas-powered devices. And if anyone, for instance, is familiar with the advice stating, no, you should just, you go out and you, you purchase, you get a few gallons of Uh, non-ethylated gasoline, just pure gasoline, and run that instead. But again, it's not that simple. And the reason it's not that simple is that there are a great deal of variables in that situation. For... The longest time most people have known, for example, that there's good gas and there's bad gas. Now, they're also told, for instance, that really it doesn't matter because basically the gasoline, the core of the gasoline of itself, it is... um, refined in the U.S. from something like three, we have three, I don't know, three or four refineries that regardless of the brand, that's where all the fuel is coming from. And that is true. But where things change is right after that point in the refining process. Because what happens is the various other companies, once they get their hands on that refined gasoline, what is now gasoline, they make choices as far as any additional um, additives. And that is separate and also different from let's just or let's just separate that from the ethanol issue. I want to I want to make that perfectly clear. And you have to know that. You have to understand that because in and of itself um if you're having gum up problems or any other noted problems as I said it's not the ethanol 
okay? It's not the ethanol. It is a number of things. One of them are any or all additives that are added to the refined gasoline before they are put in the tanks after they are distributed to the various gas stations. Another aspect of this, in addition to this, is that those tanks, depending on which station it is, old tanks do not do as well or good of a job of keeping the gasoline in good shape as do new tanks. And there are all kinds of potential problems that begin happening with the degradation process of roughly around, you know, 10 years of usage of the tanks. Now, what they're talking about doing, and it's not, it hasn't been finalized yet, but they are coming up with a, uh, instead of the uh, typical standard steel tanks, of a very special polymer-based uh, tank. And quite simply, it doesn't have the degradation issues of the older metallic tanks. Um... And one of the main reasons for that is that it's not metallic. Because, you see, regardless of the quality of the steel that is used for the tank, there is the process um, of electrolysis. I'm talking, in this case, not deliberate, I'm talking about there is a natural amount of electrolysis that occurs with any metallically based holding storage tank. Now, <clears throat> in uh, fairly recent years, they have made great improvements to this. And they have systems in place that are supposed to help circumvent these problems that are caused by this, um, you know, natural percentage of electrolysis. It's just something, it is a reaction that quite simply is virtually unavoidable and quite natural. It has to do with interacting with the tank that is in the ground. And it's basically, for lack of a better term, it's in, and I'm saying very, it may be very, very minute, but it has, the ground has an electrical charge. And so you roughly have, you end up with, two very broad options. Now, 
you can try to do something um, electronically to mitigate that charge, or you can make the holding tanks out of a material that simply do not uh, interact with that process. And so that's where they are now. As a matter of fact, that's where they've been for the last few years. But because of cost, it does cost more. And generally speaking, most of the gas stations, when they, when they have this done, particularly if they're larger stations, when they have this done, they don't, you know, do this piecemeal because it represents, you know, quite a bit of time, downtime, and quite a bit of money. And so they, instead of doing this and addressing this problem piecemeal, they would just rather, you know, replace mostly all of them at the same time. So, you know, if you have, say, I don't know, 30 pumps, you have a place, and it has 30 pumps, then they may do somewhere, let's say, between um, 10 to 15 of those all at the same time, which is good. That's a good thing. But, of course, if you look at it from their point of view, there's going to be a downtime, the, of course, the entire cost of, of doing this, and they have to figure in the downtime. And, I mean, fortunately, they've, they've gotten good enough at this that, I don't know, within three, four days, they can make this switch if they're well-equipped and if they... If, saying if they don't have any uh, major complications yeah they they can they can knock them out that fast that's again that's if they don't have any kind of complications but generally speaking <clears throat> and if we're not assuming for instance that there is leakage from the storage tanks what they try to do is wait till they are absolutely even to the point of, you know, leaking. Um, because their idea is, you know, maximizing their profit at all costs. That That is it. That's the rule. That's the bottom line. And so that's what they do. So pretty much the way the tanks now, the way the tanks are even filled, they're, um, they've stepped up the filtration process on the initial loading of the fuel from the uh, refinery and various screens that they have. So they've, they really do a pretty good job of that to minimize this kind of problem. And also, now with the new receiving tanks, they also have more filters. 
So it's double filtered. So yeah, all things being equal, I mean, it has, you know, in that respect, uh, not having to worry about rust and corrosion as they used to in the past, they've, they've really improved all that. But as I said, the problem is, um, is getting these new tanks and materials up and running and in the ground. Now, besides that, what is actually the much bigger issue that many people don't know about is not the problem with the ethanol per se, but it's how the ethanol is sourced. And so, for many years, there was deals in Washington, and because the industries basically, you know, they cater to the government, they work out their various deals. But it's, you know, it's become like a giant cartel is what it is. And so, you know, on the one side, as far as what, you know, the, uh, the industry is telling consumers, well, they're telling them what they want to hear because that's the paradigm. That's what has been handed down as though it's gospel truth for the last 30 plus years. And the problem is they're not telling you what the main problem is. And the main problem is not the ethanol. It is the source material of the ethanol. Corn, which has been subsidized to do this for, like I said, 30 or 40 years, um, it's really... It's been a very beneficial and sweet deal, of course, for farmers or the producers of corn ethanol. And they don't want to they don't want to they don't want to change that. They don't want to rock the boat. But the fact of the matter is, now this is from a a green point of view. Everything on the surface that you're being told about the greenness, the benefits of ethanol, or I'm just going to call it, in this case, what it is, corn-based ethanol. On, the, on, a, on a very superficial level, it sounds great. But of course, the reality is something quite different. Because in order to see any green savings... Okay, if you're going to see any at all, of course, we're talking about carbon emissions. And this part of the equation is not that simple. And it's hard to describe, say, on the mass news in a 15 second soundbite. They just say, oh, yep, corn, green, ethanol, good. And that's about it. And that's not it. Because producing the ethanol from corn 
in order to get anywhere near um, a positive outcome as far as the uh, you know lower emissions, the the net effect. You're talking about you know twenty or twenty five years. Somewhere in that, in order to realize when everything, I mean everything, when everything start to finish is taken into account, and that is the degradation from the CO2 output from the planting of the soil to initially get the corn going. There's a lot to this. There's a whole lot to this. And you don't, you don't, see any payoff really overall until you're using this in vehicles for like 25 years. So in that respect, and I'm not, again, I'm not talking about any potential good or bad effects on a vehicle or, you know, a small, you know, powered appliance um, chainsaw or lawnmower or what have you it isn't that it's just that the overall effect it's it's actually quite a negative effect there are much more far better sources that could be utilized to produce ethanol rather than corn And one of those, the one of the very top ones, is switchgrass. Because there's a whole, again, a whole number of reasons for this. But when you look at the situation from an energy input versus what you get out, and what is the time turnaround there is absolutely for the benefits of um, ethanol. There is absolutely no comparison between ethanol that is produced from switchgrass to corn, and there are potentially even better sources than switchgrass. But right now, as it overall, as it stands right now, if they were able and willing to convert from, say, growing corn to replacing that with growing switchgrass in its place, now then you would have a huge difference. You would have a much, an incredibly faster, a positive green effect. Simply because the entire process, the entire, what you could say is a metabolic chemical process between doing this between corn and switchgrass are simply that night and day. They are that different. And so, the important thing to bear in mind, regardless of 
what we were told for many years. And remember, we're told this false information because of the money path. All you have to do, ultimately, is follow the money. You follow the money, and you see the who, how, what, and why of who's benefiting from this, and you get your answer. And as a matter of fact, if we just talk about um, this is just one of several other um, sources, let's say, of generating um, the um, E85. And there is a polymer. It is a biological polymer that is being developed and it's showing promise. And supposedly, this may be even far more efficient because you remember, we, we have to look at the entire process from beginning to end. No matter what it is, you know, whatever we're thinking about using. And this particular polymer, it's a, a biopolymer. And it could be its, its, its output of ethanol versus its cost and its time in order to do this. It could even be significantly better than switchgrass. And so, as far as <clears throat> as far as anything else is concerned, what needs to be investigated, what needs to be checked into, um, and put put forth out there, are at least mentioning in the public that I'm, which is why I'm talking to you which is why I want you to talk to me and talk to your friends. And this is, this is how this stuff gets going. That's, you know, basically the way it works. And um, from what I have investigated, generally speaking, I mean, uh, we'd, we'd be beating a dead horse if we were trying to talk about the, you know, the efficiency between switchgrass and, and corn. It's, it's a no-brainer. Do they have the technology? Yes, hands down. In other words, it's turnkey. It's ready to go. The problem is convincing the investment that is necessary on the uh, the farms that are you know producing this this um, ethanol corn to completely change over to a different source and that in turn does require an investment and they you know they're probably going to balk in general as with anything good you know you can you can try to get this going and you want to get it going because 
Yeah, as far as a, a very substantial improvement, um, as far as um, any of the negatives for the atmosphere are concerned, coming from you know ethanol production, like I said, you can't even compare the two, and that is a good thing for everyone. But the problem is, as is often the case, um, getting that done, getting that good idea realized, you know, we don't we don't have to pay multi millions or billions of dollars for a damn feasibility study. That's already been done. As far as this polymer that I'm speaking, it's a, actually a biopolymer. Um, I, I don't. I don't know. I assume that they are working on that, but there are these things in the works. Okay. But this is like, you know, um, I don't know, akin to several years back. You, those of you old enough to remember this, when we finally, finally phasing out and getting rid of old school incandescent bulbs and replacing them with LEDs. And I remember uh, way back then talking to some who were at that time even older than me. And I heard every argument against it that you could imagine. And they thought it was, I'm not kidding, they thought it was actually some kind of conspiracy. I heard everything from Russian conspiracies to basically and uh, telling us allowing us to have the special light that only incandescents produce and i just heard it all and in the end it's silly mm -hmm. but then again if you want to keep backtracking i'm sure i'm pretty damn certain that when the first automobiles were being created and these things in society started showing up you can bet i'm pretty damn sure that there were a hell of a lot of uh horse raisers and blacksmiths that weren't exactly too happy about that either so there you have it So what did you think of this episode? You can go on over to theearnestmanshow.com, find this particular episode number, and leave a comment for me and the rest of the world just below the player in the comments section. And additionally, unlike platforms such as this, I do not treat you or want to treat you as a child. I don't want to tell you what language you can use. I don't want to prescribe what are good words or what are, mm, those are bad words. I want you to have the freedom to express yourself exactly the way you wish. Until next time, this is Ernest Mann reminding you that there are no bad words, only bad actions.